let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in a unity that you've provided, Father, from eternity past. Thank you so much for giving us the Holy Bible, for it is very much the sustenance of our lives, the very bread of life. Father, thank you for your patience with us as we continue to trudge along, Father, and we make our mistakes, but as your word states, the righteous man gets up after he falls seven times. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening as members of the congregation, and we pray for those mostly that are still lost in this world and that you might humble them before it's too late. Father, we're so grateful, most of all, for your Son's work, our Lord and Savior on the cross, to make an evening like this even a joyful thing, something to relish, Father. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Let's go look over here until that person shuts off their phone. Someone received a text. <laughs> Undistracted devotion to the Lord. Uh, let's start off with some scripture. Go to Ephesians 3.16. Ephesians 3.16. <clears throat> Changing direct directions, but as is always the case, never leaving behind all the good work that we just completed in uh, that wonderful series, God Sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. Ephesians three, sixteen, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, so much of what we've been doing, so much work, is really encapsulated in that phrase, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. You see, that's the launching pad, you see. Being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful way to start a series titled Undistracted Devotion to the Lord. I want to say thank you uh, to Scott for delivering a nice meal on Tuesday, nice wrap-up. Uh, here's a quick review. Um, there were two wonderful examples that the Spirit gave us to think about, two individuals that are wonderful examples, sort of, um, I don't want to say immortalized, but captured in Holy Scripture. And as Scott and I discussed in greater detail yesterday, both were godly women. And I think the Spirit's been sort of um, knocking us sort of upside the head a little bit on the idea that uh, if you read Holy Scripture, 
Um, and you look at even Christ's ministry, and you look at who were always there, who were always supporting him, even with their own finances, it was women. And uh, I'm not saying men weren't around, but ladies, um, godly women, they certainly have a place um, in Holy Scripture, and it's fantastic. So we were talking about that, godly women, and that both were um, godly women that came out on Tuesday. For starters, there was Anna, a woman who spent the vast majority of her life portraying the type of life that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 7. And that is undistracted devotion to the Lord. She was widowed, and um, she spent the remainder of her life, years, decades, serving the Lord in the temple. Um, and that's what we call undistracted devotion to the Lord. I can't remember if I wrote a blog or a few lessons or both on this topic, but it's such a fundamental perspective, so it's wonderful that we're being given this what I'll call prime time opportunity to dig our heels in a little on this topic. So let's let's go back to Anna real quick. Go to Luke 2:36. Luke 2:36. Again, a wonderful example of undistracted devotion to the Lord. Luke 2:36. <clears throat> And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So she didn't have a very long marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84. And so she had a very long time as a widow. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to, of him, the baby Jesus, of course, in view and context, to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So let's begin this way with Anna's undistracted devotion. She consciously decided to serve the Lord for the remainder of her life after her husband died. While this may be considered a special calling, it nonetheless was godly. And that's a very important point, I think, for all of us to take pause and think about because we might have a special calling on our lives. That is not, quote-unquote, the norm. Um, certainly wasn't normal during those times for a woman who was widowed to spend that long uh, as a widow um, and just flat out serving in a temple. It was very likely that some people who read this passage would react maybe negatively. Say, well, what, did, what was she doing all that time? Why didn't she get married? You know, this kind of a thing. Some might even wrongly suggest that Anna was out of line based on God's own words, for example. Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In other words, why didn't she just get remarried? I mean, she was young enough. Why didn't she get remarried? Why did she stay single? She must have been 
out of line because isn't everybody supposed to be married? Isn't that what God wanted? I mean, look at what Genesis 2.18 says. Here's what I'll say to that. Always remember that we should never put God in a box. Isaiah 55, 8, 9. His ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. We cannot put God ever in a box. For example, if everyone was meant to be married, then Jesus and Paul would have been. I mean, Jesus is Jesus, right? And Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. So Jesus is our, ho- our, our, our prototype, and Paul is the writer of most of the books in the New Testament. And neither one of them were married, and neither one of them had kids. And neither one of them had a, quote, traditional life. And so what are we going to suggest? That there's a problem with Holy Scripture. But two, Genesis 2.18 says maybe God forgot about his own son. Maybe God, you know, forgot to bring Paul, the right woman in his life, so he could marry. I doubt that's the case at all. And so we have to remember we should never, ever put God in a box. What we do know, what we do know is that God provides. That we do know. That is what we would call absolute doctrine. God provides, regardless of circumstances. Go to Philippians 4.11. Philippians 4.11, that's what we do know. We do not know what anyone's circumstances exactly are for the case, or for in the case of Anna. I'm sure there were lots of people, especially in that day and age, that were saying to Anna, why don't you get remarried? You're still young, you're capable, blah, blah, blah. Um, no, it's not my calling. And I'm sure there are people hearing my voice and will hear my voice when they listen to this message later on that are single and saying, yeah, that's what I go. I go into work every day and everybody's, oh, wow, you're still young and capable. Why don't you get married? There must be somebody out there for you. No, that's not my calling right now. And you have to stand your ground. You have to remember that that's not for everyone in every circumstance. Here's what we do know that God will provide. Philippians 4.11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That's a big phrase. Whatever circumstances I am, up here on the board, I think most Americans' attention is drawn immediately to financial roots when they read this passage. They say, oh, you know, yeah, I've been broke, and I've had money, and then I've been broke, and then I've had money, because the American way is all about money. Uh, our prestige, our reputation, everything hovers around money because that's the American way because we're a bunch of idolaters, essentially. And he with the most toys at the end wins. So said one of the richest people to ever walk the face of the earth. And he's probably rotting in hell right now or burning. I think most Americans, when they hear whatever circumstances I am, they immediately think about finances But the truth is that Paul is talking about every form of circumstance, financial, geographic, familial, emotional, etc., 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 any and every circumstance, whatever circumstances I am, I've learned to be content. Why? Because he's the same guy who wrote, my grace is sufficient for you. Oh, yeah, Jesus said that. 
God provides. Whatever circumstances I am, God provides. And that was sort of the lead-in with Anna. That was um, one of the key principles that we learned when we looked at Anna's life. So a fundamental fact about true humility is that it accepts whatever God's desires are for it, no matter what. That's a fundamental fact about true humility. It accepts whatever God's desires are for it. Whatever you want, Lord, I just want to be pleasing to you, no matter what. If we read, and we might get to it this evening, if we were to read Hebrews 11, we see several accounts of people who were, at times, confused about God's will. Abraham, Moses, Sarah, uh, Joseph even, etc., etc. These are all people in the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith. And they all sort of were saying, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right, or they got confused. Again, what does Paul write in verse 11? Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I in. Again, I think most Americans' attention is drawn immediately to financial roots, but that's a mistake. That's too narrow. The truth is that Paul is talking about every form of circumstance, whether financial, geographical, familial, emotional, etc., etc., etc. Verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. He does talk about finances. That's cool. And I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. But here's the key. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why? Because God provides. God provides, and that's a faith issue, not a physical issue, not a food or a money or reputation issue. It's a faith issue. Verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once to my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus uh, what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. We talked about sacrificial love at the close of the last series. Well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Up here on the board. Again, we should not be so narrow as to think that Paul was only talking about finances. Was that the key element of the illustration? Sure. The vehicle, if you would, to, to present the principle itself? Sure. But he's talking about all your needs. And some of you have you know, emotional needs beyond financial needs spiritual needs, all kinds of needs, all your needs, all means just that, all. The key qualifier, again, to echo from our previous series, is the word needs in Philippians 4.19. The qualifier is the word needs. He'll provide all your needs. It doesn't say wants that we've expressed as needs. In other words, we can't play that game and then try to impose such things on the Lord. 
Say, the Lord, you provide, right? Well, this is a need, and I'm praying for this need. And he's saying, but that's not a need, that's a want. But I need it. I need a man in my life. I need a woman in my life. You know, like Genesis says, it says right there, I shouldn't be alone. I need a woman. Come on, Dad. He said, you don't need that right now. You need my son. You need to settle down. You need to get a solid relationship going with my son before you worry about some other love that you're going to pervert anyways, like you've done 17,000 times in the past, and look at how that's worked out. I know what you need, and it's not what you think, because Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, etc., etc. So just remember that. All your needs, it doesn't say wants, that we've expressed as needs. Luke 2, 37b, Anna never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayer. Anna's needs were always met. Doesn't say much more than that, but she survived until she was 80-something, so I'm going to say her needs were met. Luke 12, 30 to 31, up here on the board. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. And that's what we talked about. I think it was on Sunday. Get your priorities straight. You seek Him first, and He'll add whatever you need. Everybody, especially in America, everybody's got that wrong. Everybody's got it literally flipped. I'm going to do all the work to get what I think I need, and then if I have any leftover time, maybe I'll go to church or something. But. So, uh, and that, I'll tell you what, that thought I just gave you just prompted this week's blog. I narrow it down to two types of believers. So if you're interested in the two types of believers that I see, read the blog. So just to close out our thoughts on Anna, up here on the board, Anna's undistracted devotion. Do you think she was bored or lonely? Or do you think the Lord filled her cup because she put him and his people first? What do you think? She lived until she was 84. She was only married for seven years. What do you think? Decade upon decade. Anna epitomizes this evening's message title, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord. Some of you might be saying to yourselves, I could never do that. I could never do that. Serve in the temple for decades. You know what? With that attitude, you're 100% correct. You're literally 100% correct. If you believe you could never do it, then you really couldn't. Because that's actually truth speaking. You can't do it. You know, the first part of humility, which Anna obviously had, is surrender. The first part of humility is surrender. You have to surrender yourself. If you're unwilling to surrender your human flesh, Jesus called this denying yourself in Matthew 16, 24, if you're unwilling to surrender your human flesh, you're going to remain in your weakness, proving ultimately that you really cannot do something like Anna, even if called. You might even get the calling. But if you make that grave mistake of saying, I can't do that, and your focus remains on you, and you haven't surrendered, you're not humble enough yet 
to receive his grace to actually do it. And you're going to thwart the whole thing. Go to John 15, 5. John 15, verse 5. So if you say, you know, I could never do that, you're absolutely right. You could never do that. But God can. But if you focus on the fact that you cannot do it for the remainder of your life, then guess what? You'll never do it. And isn't the title Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, not self? So you say, I could never do that. Who are you focusing on? You. But look at John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There's your answer. When you're faced with a challenge and you say, I can't do this, your only option is to say, but he can. Because if all you do is stay right there, I can't do this, you're right, you can't do it. And you really won't do it. Until you get a change of perspective, a change of heart even. But Jesus himself said, from apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we're to knit together what the Spirit's saying here, we must conclude up here on the board, undistracted devotion requires... What does that require, in other words? I mean, this is great. Undistracted devotion. It sounds grand. Who doesn't want undistracted devotion to the Lord? It sounds perfect. But there's a certain requirement. Because you can't do that. Undistracted devotion requires a power that is impossible for the human flesh to generate. You're too distractible. You're too disinterested. You're too antagonistic, even, to the Lord himself to display undistracted devotion to him. So it requires a power that is impossible for the human flesh to generate. God's will, though, is always satisfied by means of his own grace. If he desires we are undistractedly devoted to Christ, then he will abundantly supply the humble, key word, the humble, with grace to meet his desire. And what's the starting point for humility? Surrender. I have to surrender the I, the me. And how hard is that in America? Most Americans, I mean, it's all about the me. It's all about the I. It's never we anymore. It's never you. It's always me. It's we when it's something good that I can get out of it. When there's some benefit to me, okay, then there's a we. But if there's no benefit to me, it's I or me. It's always, that's the flesh. So, if he desires we are undistractedly devoted to Christ, then he will abundantly supply the humble, the one who's thrown out all the eyes and all the me's, with grace to meet his desire. That's James 4, 6. He's opposed to the proud, he gives grace to the humble. So, how did Anna manage to spend the majority of her life serving in the temple? How did she pull that off? It's easy. God gave her the power to do it. It really is that simple. She's not going to be able to do that. God gave her the power to do it and provided for her needs. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and say she didn't have a uh, Winnebago parked outside the temple where she got to go, you know, tailgating after work. I'm going to say she had a, 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 probably a difficult existence. Fasting and praying all the time? 
Some of you are like, fasting? I go fast through the takeout line at McDonald's. That's about fasting for me. <laughs> right? I'm going to go out on a limb and say she lived a simple, need-filled life. And that's something I think we can all think about. A simple, need-filled life. Not a wanton life. She was merely a humble vessel that he used to bring glory to himself. I mean, heck, she's in the Bible. That, by the way, is the very best we can ever hope to be. A vessel used by him to his glory. And that's very much unlike the Nike ads and the Monday night football announcers and what they might propose. I mean, it's, it's so disgusting. I look at some of these guys, and some of them, some of them I don't mind. They give glory, all praise, glory, honor to God and Jesus Christ, which is awesome. But some of them are so obnoxious, it's unbelievable. It's me, me, me. Do you see me out there? I'm amazing. I'm the best. I rock. And the guys up in the booth are like, yeah, he's the best. Let's idolize him. Let's give him $10 million more than the next guy. Our greatest moments are not when we are being anything but humble vessels. We're all glory and honor go to God. Those are our big moments. I know some of you are like, oh, but what about when I graduated college? What about when I got my first real job? What about when I got married? What about when I had my first kid? What about when I, yeah, what about it? What about all glory and honor go to God? How about drop all the I's and the me's and did you see me? See, see, see me? See what I did? See how amazing I am? I'm going to go out on a limb and say Anna wasn't like that. She was too busy fasting and praying for knuckleheads like us. Anna served in a way that she felt best served her Lord. Are you? Anna served in a way that she felt best served her Lord. Are you? Only you can answer that. Now, if we fast forward to the church today, we find ourselves with different callings. I mean, the temple doesn't even exist for us the way it did for Anna. Our temple is our body. Since God now indwells us, our temple is our body. Since God now indwells us. In many ways, the way we treat our bodies is a first test to our undistracted devotion to the Lord. Let me say it again. In many ways, the way we treat our bodies is a first test to our undistracted devotion to the Lord. I mean, it is His temple now. He does indwell us. Go to 1 Corinthians 6.15 and just think about what did Anna do in the temple? She prayed, she fasted, she served. She prayed, she fasted, she served. For years and years and years. Well, you have years and years and years with a temple, don't you? And what do you do? Do you pray? Do you serve? Do you bring glory to God with that temple? 
1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away, verse 15, 1 Corinthians 6.15. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Think about that. What is that saying? Verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Do we forget that this thing is a temple of God the Holy Spirit? And He goes and does everything we do? And He's always there with us, indwelling us? Think about that. Do you know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Up here on the board. Glorify God in your body. Since a believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so says Holy Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6.19. We must devote ourselves to serving the Lord in it, a la Anna in Luke 2, 36-38. That's what we saw with Anna. Just a different temple. In many ways, our undistracted devotion to the Lord begins within our temple, our bodies. Let me explain this again. Since a believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we must devote ourselves to serving the Lord in it, in many ways, our undistracted devotion to the Lord begins with our temple, our bodies. Sexual sins, for example, are the most prominently described in the Bible. And for obvious reasons. Think about it. It's difficult to stay focused on the Lord when you're infatuated with another human being you've been having illicit sex with. How are you going to stay focused on the Lord? And since there's no separating yourself from your own body, what you do to and with it makes all the difference in the world. Consider the fact that the Holy Spirit never leaves your body. Consider the fact that the Holy Spirit never leaves you. Never leaves your body. That's His temple. He's there for good, permanently. Just imagine what he's thinking when you're abusing it. Maybe I, in my notes I have U-G-H exclamation. Ugh. Just imagine what he's thinking when you're abusing it. Now, let's back up a bit and pursue the big picture here. If we can't get out of our own way, if we're stuck within our own temples, defiling it regularly, let's say, with sin, 
we really have very little hope, bless you, in actually devoting ourselves to the Lord because we're too self-absorbed. I mean, those kind of, especially sexual sins like we just read, they're all-encompassing. They're the ones that are sinning from the inside out. What's our hope like of devoting ourselves to the Lord in that circumstance when we're self-absorbed like that? When the sin itself has gripped us from the very core of who we are. I mean, I guess in some ways, I remember teaching this about probably nine, eight, nine years ago. If, say, we still did have the temple, and say, instead of Anna going in there and fasting and praying and serving, she went in there with a chainsaw and maybe a, a, a Kubota tractor and just started driving over stuff and running people out and swinging things around. How, how um, devoted to the Lord is she going to be able to be? Don't worry, Lord, I'm, I'm devoting myself. I'm just going to wreck my temple. I'm just going to come in here daily and decimate everything in here. How in the world is she to suppose, while she's decimating everything, that she's able to focus on the Lord? That is absolutely no different than the person who decimates their own body regularly with sin and then supposes they can focus on the Lord the way that Scripture wants them to. I know, it's tough. It's very tough. It's not impossible because with God, all things are possible, you see? Because if you go home tonight and say, I'm going to stop this sinning, and you don't go to God in prayer, and you don't humble yourself, I'm going to stop this thing. It's not going to work. But you have to do what I've been teaching you now for years. Go to Him. Say, I obviously cannot do this on my own. I know. Because you're a sinner. <laughs> I can't stop this on my own. I need your help, Lord. I would love to be devoted to you. I would love to be like Anna, but I can't do it. I know. And for as long as you stay with I and me, you're 100% correct. But if you turn to me and you start with prayer and humility and you surrender, then I can do anything. Because now you become a vessel of mercy. Now you become usable. Now your cup has been emptied of you, and now I can fill it up with me. So, as we've studied so many times in the past, if we're overcome by self-absorption, we certainly aren't geared to being focused on others. And if we synthesize that thought with the very reason God has left us here on earth after salvation, you know, to spread the gospel, then we quickly realize that we aren't able to fulfill our duties to the very one who created us. Remember, our job is to bring people to Christ by spreading the good news about Him. And that's not possible if we're too wrapped up in ourselves, sinning against our own temples even. The message we're supposed to be sending 
while supporting a healthy temple, is one of reconciliation to God. I mean, it's kind of hard to, you know, think about Anna in, with a Kubota tractor and, and the chainsaw. Hey, come be reconciled to God. Just don't get chopped up along the way. How inviting is that? The message we're supposed to be sending while supporting a healthy temple is one of reconciliation to God. Here's my favorite line from Tuesday's message up here on the board. God extends an offer of peace to even the worst of sinners. That's a message we need to be sending. God extends an offer of peace to even the worst of sinners. Up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's not something we're able to do if we're violating the temple with sin all the time, if we're self-absorbed, self-righteous, making excuses, justifying our ridiculousness, all the above. Can't do that. An active ministry of reconciliation takes focus. So ask yourselves, why do you think the kingdom of darkness is hell-bent on distracting you? Some of you, I can tell by looking in your eyes right now, some of you are distracted. For the last five minutes even, you're somewhere else. I don't know. Think about it. What have I been teaching? Anything that takes you away from your first love is evil. So it could be that person you were just thinking about. Oh, but they're so cute. and they're so, uh, Yeah, no. You shouldn't be thinking about them. You're getting fed the Word of God. There's nothing better than being fed the Word of God. And you're worried about what? Work? What? Manipulating someone? Your next chess move? What's, what is it you're thinking about? What is it that's distracting you? What's more important than what's going on right now in your soul or what the Spirit's trying to do in your soul? Nothing. The answer is nothing. So the question is, why do you think the kingdom of darkness is hell-bent on distracting you? Because an active ministry of reconciliation takes focus. Why do you think you are so distracted right now? Why do you think the world encourages you to merchandise with it? You know, jump in their economy. Play in the economy. You know, like some people play in the uh, stock market. Eh, it's going to take, you know, I got $10,000 in the bank. I'm going to take 1000 I'm going to E-Trade. I'm going to dabble. Dabble in something. I, have, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Probably going to lose my shirt. I'm going to go dabble in it, right? Isn't that what you guys do? And I'm going to take about 10%. Some of you like, the other way, it's like 90%. I'm going to take some percentage of my life. I'm going to go dabble in the world economy. I'm going to invest in it. I'm going to take my time, my energy. I'm going to invest in the world and see what I get for a return. That's called merchandising. You know who did that? You know who described the trade merchandising? Satan himself. Read Ezekiel 28. That's how it all started with him. He's a conniver, right? I can play these games. I know you create. I look. 
But I want to be, I want to, I want to rise up here. I don't want all the glory to go to you. I want to rise up. Isn't that what some of you are doing? I want to rise up. I'm going to dabble a little bit in the world market. See, the worldly economy. I'm going to rise up. Hmm. That's satanic. That's exactly how Satan's described. He said, look at how beautiful I am. Look at how smart I am. I can make a lot of currency in this little economy over here. Sounds like you. I got certain talents the world seems to highly esteem. I can make a little extra dough on the side. I can make a few extra friends with the world. What does the Bible say about being friendly with the world? It makes you an enemy of God. See, I can merchant, I can trade, I can dabble in the economy. How you <laughs> how do you do that and have undistracted devotion to the Lord? How do you do all that? and have undistracted devotion to the Lord? The answer is you can't. And the funny thing is, not funny, but the sad thing is, you'll have way more success in that economy than God's when you play that game. You really will. You'll have more success. And that's how God, that's how the kingdom of darkness lures people away. Because he's saying, Jesus, spiritual maturity thing is like slow poking but over here, if I dabble over here, I'm skyrocketing. Look at the promotions I'm getting in the world. And I don't mean just at work and just in every aspect of life. Look how quickly I'm accelerating in this economy. I think I'm just going to stay in this economy. I think I'm going to defect, so to speak. And that's how you get lured away. But just know that that kind of merchandising is satanic. And Satan... Is the prototype for it. Just read Ezekiel 28. I know that's a lot to ask. Up here on the board. Here's the words retort to all of that. Luke 9, 23 in the Amplified. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, excuse me, he must deny himself, set aside selfish interests, and take up his cross daily, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come, and follow me, Believing in me, conforming to my example in, li in living, and if need be, suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. Up here on the board. Carrying our cross is a decision to put selfish desires aside and live for the reconciliation of others, whatever the cost to us may be. And this just screams of sacrificial love as we've been noting. If we are simply willing, He will give us the power to carry our crosses. Here's where our messages have been ending as of late. This verse, I don't know what's going on with this verse, but this verse made it into the blog too. It's probably like the eighth time it's come up in our lessons. And it even made it into the blog. Now, I don't know about you, but that's usually His way of saying, will you, will you imprint this thing? on your brain. He's really driving this particular verse home. For whatever reason in this congregation. Remember, not every congregation is being pressed this way with Galatians 5.13. This is something for us. So whatever's going on in your soul, you need it. 
If he has me writing blogs about it, you really need it. Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Functional love. Whatever that means to you, that's between you and the Lord. You were called to freedom. Do not turn that freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is where the Spirit gave us one of the most profound analogies, I think, to ever come from the pulpit. From this pulpit, the one with Harriet Tubman. I was blown away. That was, the, that was like one of the most amazing analogies to come from this pulpit. I was, I was like, that is literally perfect. I told Scott it was like almost like Jesus-like. I'm serious. And he's like, I know, right? <laughs> then I found out it wasn't his, so. <laughs> Although, was it? No, was it? No, it wasn't. <laughs> dog. Doesn't matter. It's his, right? Stop being like that. Jeez, man. He's got a little sign. He's like, Scotty, Scotty. He's got one of those big, like, fingers. <laughs> Jeremy's like, I can't see. <laughs> I loved it. It was amazing. It was like one of the best analogies. I was blown away. That's an amazing analogy. The Underground Railroad up here on the board, Harriet Tubman. Around 1850, she escaped from her slave owner's plantation in Maryland and traveled by night up to Philadelphia. So she, she got out where she was then free. She found the way to freedom. I got goosebumps. She didn't stay there. Galatians 5.13, right? She didn't use her freedom for fleshly purposes. She went back. Through love, she served others. She went back knowing that people were still in slavery and needed to find a way out. She immediately went back to help lead her friends and family out of slavery also. Duh, Galatians 5.13, that is literally what is going on. Supposedly you people are out. You're supposed to go back and find people and say, this is the way out. <laughs> you're stuck in misery, you're in bondage, you're slaves. Get out of here, I can show you the way out. That's the gospel message. But, but I'm, a, you know, I'm bad, yeah, no kidding, get out, let's go. God wants you just the way you are. Jesus Christ died on the cross knowing how big of a moron you are and all those ridiculous years of sinning. This is the way out. Let's go. Say, but it's dangerous. I'm going to lose myself. Harriet could have been killed. How about that? I'm going to lose my reputation. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to lose members of my family. What did Jesus have to say about that? What do you think? He wants you to love him so much that you hate your family. Relatively speaking. That's the whole idea. You are to lose yourself for him. Loved it, loved it, loved it. My mind was blown away when I heard it on Tuesday. This tremendous believer in Christ chose to live out her life after being set free, helping others find their way to freedom. 
She knew the way, as Jesus said up here on the board. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Harriet Tubman knew the way out of slavery. And she showed the lost the way, even under extreme danger and the threat of ultimate loss. That is the perfect illustration of Jesus' own heart on evangelism. And when I speak of evangelism here, I'm speaking in broad terms, as in living the gospel reality, meaning that our lives are to facilitate the spreading of the gospel, not just moments of giving it verbally. For example, go to Mark 8.33. Mark 8.33. Our lives are to facilitate the spreading of the gospel, not just moments of giving it verbally, like, hey, Here's a silver coin with John 3.16 on the back. Have a good day. Mark 8.33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the emphasis is on verse 35 here. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You have to lose your life. Give it up. Surrender. That's the very start of humility. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Those are big questions. Questions I think we need to ask ourselves incrementally. We lose our life for his sake when we live undistractedly devoted to our Lord. You can't have both, in other words. You can't play that little game. Undistracted devotion means just that. You're undistracted. You're focused on Him. That's what it means to lose your life for His sake in the Gospels. You can't be violating yourself. You can't be violating others and expect to be undistracted because you will most definitely be distracted. Beginning with the Holy Temple that's called your body that the Holy Spirit uses to indwell. The point, or that is the point of this new series we find ourselves on. We lose our life for His sake when we live undistractedly devoted to our Lord. Such an endeavor begins with our own temples, our bodies, where God the Holy Spirit abides. The Spirit will always motivate us to preserve the holy estate of His temple. Remember, it's not even ours anymore. We've been purchased with a price. It's not our temple even. He's like, I set this pot, I made this, this temple, I want to sanctify this temple as mine. So that we can bring glory to me. I didn't set you free so you could use it for your own purposes and serve yourself in some perverted love rather than others. Because there's no glory for me in that, there's glory for you. You serve yourself, you bring glory to yourself. 
So such an endeavor begins with our own temples where God the Holy Spirit abides. Again, the Spirit will always motivate us to pre preserve the holy estate of His temple and use said temple to His own glory. And then the Spirit put this in my notes. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Anna gives proof of this, as do all those listed in Hebrews 11. We saw this over and over. This is another verse that keeps coming up in our lessons. It's now crossing series boundaries. 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Up here on the board, just saying you love isn't enough. To play that game is to stunt your own sanctification, and in doing so, you restrain love itself from being imparted to you. That's a game that we play. Oh, sure, I love the Lord. Really? Why are you so distracted? Who or what is distracting you from your first love? If you love Him so much, what is it that you love more? What is it that's keeping you from worshiping Him? I mean, you do realize you should worship Him. I mean, He purchased you with a price. That body that you're using, that you're abusing with whatever you're abusing it with, it's not yours. It was purchased with a price. The one that was yours was dead. Just saying you love isn't enough, so talk is cheap. This takes us right back to the one verse that keeps coming back up in our messages. Go to Galatians 5.13. Let's read it. Why not? Let's read it. See you in the eye gate. This verse, for whatever reason, is dominating our messages. Galatians 5.13 You are called the freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. What does that mean for you? I don't know. I have an idea. I know what it means for me. But what does it mean for you? But through love, serve one another. What does it mean for you? That's a decision you have to make with the Lord. And you start with prayer. This brings us back to a previous lesson up here on the board. You are free to love. God wants us not just to love in a way that He knows it, but to love others so that they know it. That was part of our previous series. The world sees the choices we make. After all, love is what attracts an unbeliever to our Savior. You can't scare someone into salvation. They're drawn. This is where we ended a couple of Sundays ago. Might have been three Sundays ago now, up here on the board. God's love is so great that He wants you to that He wants to save you. That is the message of the gospel. How are you going to give that message if you're hmm, distracted? You're not really that interested in delivering that message. If you're distracted, if you're self-absorbed. Our end goal is to show others Christ, His precious love. Well, His love was unconditional towards others. His love wasn't a selfish love at all. Read Philippians 2. 
His love was completely selfless. So if all anyone ever sees is you loving yourself because you're serving yourself, because, you know, you shall know them by their fruit. If all anyone sees is your love for yourself because all you do is serve yourself, is that Christ's love that you're, that's emanating from you? No. It's the flesh. On a more practical note, we also have considered the fact that only God sees the heart, whereas the world sees our actions and choices. So we're dovetailing at a very big picture now before I close. Devotion to the Lord is something that others certainly see. For example, many people would have grown to know Anna and her dedication to the temple. I mean, decades. Oh, there's Anna again. What's she doing? Serving the Lord. She's praying and she's fasting, she's serving, she's praying, she's fasting, she's serving. Who's that? That's Anna. She's been there for years and years and years. She obviously loves the Lord. Yep. Why, yes, she does. So many people would have grown to know Anna in her dedication to the temple, for she was there all the time. So here's the question, folks. And this is the stingy one. What's your dedication to your temple look like? You know, the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body. What's your dedication to your temple look like? Which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. To whose glory do you use it? To whose glory do you use that temple? You know, the one that's not even yours. The one that was purchased for you. To whose glory do you use it? Do you exercise your will over your temple to God's glory or to your own? How's your good name these days? Again, to whose glory do you use his temple? Do you exercise your will over said temple to God's glory or to your own? And then I guess I'll close here. How's your good name these days? And think back to our lessons not that long ago on good names. How's your good name these days? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for always reminding us that humility is the key to all of this and that by grace we're able to be sanctified. We cannot sanctify ourselves, Father. The eyes and the knees, they have, to, they have to leave us. We have to deny ourselves and pick up our own crosses and understand what that means with true wisdom, Father. Thank you for loving us and thank you for revealing to us your patience through all of this. We ask for your blessings now as we take these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, that need them so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.